Hello and welcome back. Today's episode is about San Francisco, Salt Lake City and New York. Bill, hello. Good to talk to you again. Manu, good to see you. Good to hear your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just jump in right uh, in. This was wrong, but you know what I mean. Let's just jump right in. Um, We left off when, um, yeah, you, you told us about the psychiatric thing, the graveyard shift. And uh, you decided to actually move on from that. I did. Uh, I listened to what the doctor had to say, and I was ready. Uh, I was ready to th- throw on the towel. One, one of the things that I didn't mention, uh, when Rose started asking me or uh, questions around the work or just acknowledging the pain that I, that I experienced while she was rubbing my head, um, the headache did go away. It was almost instantaneous, and <laughs> I, I never had them again. So uh, the magic touch, the, Crazy. Uh, the TLC. So clearly um, something psychic. Yes. Uh, we finished up at UC Santa Cruz. We were there for uh, three-plus years or something, and it was time to move on. Uh, we The... We had lived the whole time in this uh, apartment, no, no great shakes, uh, nothing to write home about, but where it was situated was very, very special. It was on the bank of the San Lorenzo River in Felton, the Santa Cruz Mountains, and we looked out on a state park, so there was no homes that we would look out on. It was just fabulous. and. There was a series of two other tri, uh, well, three triplexes, and uh, in the other two were college students that we became extremely friendly with, and we had just some wonderful times. So it was a, a pain. It was painful for us to leave because we were closing this really important chapter. Uh, I was really happy with my effort. In school, I, I really did turn it around, and um, I graduated at the very top of my my class. And I was accepted into a doctorate program in clinical psychology mm-hmm. in the Berkeley, the town of Berkeley, right right across from the San Francisco. As, as it would happen, my dear, dear friend, Jim Nettleton, had an apartment in San Francisco that he was going to be leaving because he was going to move to New York City. And this apartment was huge by my standards. Uh, a couple of bedrooms, very just very ample uh, size in a really wonderful area in San Francisco. Uh, the neighborhood is called Pacific Heights, which now is a very swishy, rich area. Back then, desirable, yes, uh, even more desirable uh, to me because they had these wonderful jazz and blues bars on mm-hmm. the street that we lived, Fillmore Street. And it was fantastic. You could go into these Uh, clubs uh, very, very inexpensively, a couple bucks, and you could just hear fabulous music. This one woman I particularly adored was, her stage name was Denise Perrier, (laughs) and uh, she was fabulous. Um, So we arrive in in San Francisco. We've got a nice flat, and I I wanted to mention also one of the great things about this flat is that my friend uh, was not paying much money at all. And when he turned over the, the flat to us, we, could, we were able to keep it at that price. The, our landlord was an elderly woman that realized that she was, uh, I think she realized that she was renting this out below market value. But the, the stipulation was that you couldn't complain about anything. And there were a lot of minor problems with the place. The kitchen had linoleum a floor that was coming up from, and and uh, you could trip on it. It was, and the, the the bathtub or shower that was in the bathtub 
no matter what you did, would leak. And there was a flower store below us and the, the owners would just flip out. Uh, we, got, we finally got a handle on it, but whenever you'd have guests, no matter how you tried to explain it to them, there'd, there'd be problems there. <laughs> uh, Rose was working in a restaurant called the Coffee Cantata, a few shifts a week. She hated it. Uh, she hated waitressing, but she did it because we we needed money. And uh, even though it was something that she really did not like to do, she she hung in, hung in there and did that. I started my school, and I mentioned in the last episode that I felt that I was somehow damaged mm. by the year and a half working graveyard shift. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea to what extent I was damaged, but there was a sense as I was beginning in the school that I, I had armor on, that there was some sort of protective thing uh, that was going on there. And I remember the very first day, orientation, the dean of the school addresses us and he said something like, after your four years at our school, you will think, act, and dress differently. And I thought this was so weird. I, I thought, this is brainwashing. Mm-hmm. of some sort what who 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 cares i mean really and what was so ridiculous about this whole thing is within a month about 50% of the guys started growing beards smoking pipes and wearing tweed jackets they were like <laughs> these little sigmund freuds <laughs> walking around and I just, I just thought it was pretty laughable. It sounds like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to tell you, though, I'm a little bit embarrassed when I reflect back on those times because I was my fellow students' worst nightmare because Occasionally, what I would do, and not so occasionally, I did this with one professor in particular. I'd sit in the back of the class and I would search for a question that would unravel him a little bit, where he'd have to really stop and retrace his steps. And it was, I don't know why it was coming, where it was coming from. Uh, this this professor in particular was what we'd call a, he was an analyst, uh, psychoanalyst, neo-Freudian uh, school, so that he'd, got, he'd received his doctorate, but then he'd gone back for post-psychoanalytic training for years and years and years. Uh, and I had him in one course, and I was also part of this small practicum uh, that we would, would do specific things uh, when we get into this practicum. And one day he was talking about doing informal assessments of clients or patients. What he was getting at, basically, he said, you know, when somebody a patient walks into your room, into your waiting room, you can begin right there going through an informal assessment and getting a sense of what they're about, what their difficulties are, uh, what, what, are, the, what are the challenges, what are the problems, etc., etc. Uh, I found that uh, there was something about that that just bothered me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, prejudging. And so I suggested to the teacher during his lecture, I said, I, I think really, if you want to be honest, I mean, really accurate about this, is that you have spent 
15 years of education learning about this specific school of psychotherapy. And my guess is that you, you look at experience through this matrix, through this lens, and in a way, you could say that you, you might have judged this person before they even walked in the door because you're going to filter everything that is said through this prism. And that he just, he went off and tried to cut me off. And then other students go, no, that's really, really interesting. And this lecture was essentially halted. Uh, some people were in the, some of the students were just, let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. Lecture. And others were going, no, no, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. So after the lecture was over, I'm going up the stairs and he's coming down the stairs and he stops me and he's one stair above me, but he was a bit, a bit shorter than me. So in this situation, we were eyeball to eyeball. We're the same mm -hmm. height. And he goes, nice lecture, Mr. Stenjum. And I said, I wasn't lecturing. I was just asking a question and he proceeds to put his fingers into my chest and starts poking me really hard in the chest. And he goes, you have to understand, Mr. Stanjum, you've got authority problems in your heart, mind, and soul. You have authority problems in your heart, mind, and soul. And it kind of hurt what he was doing. Uh, and I looked at him and I said, you know, you could be right. You, you could be absolutely right. I said, but you know, Professor, you might want to check out your anger management issues. <laughs> That's what I would do if I were you. So, uh, so I ended up having to go into his practicum, right? <laughs> and <laughs> things are not really in a, good, in a good place. And there was all kinds of commotion going on in the school. There was a bulletin board up there. And there were people that were posting things like, this guy's bad news, get him out. And others were going, no, I think it's really important, his voice, and I, I really appreciate it. He's looking at this with a critical eye. So there was a, a lot of controversy. Well, I end up in this practicum with him, and this is 1980. So the whole idea of videotaping stuff was really... It's not not like on a phone. You had they wanted to videotape a role playing exercise with one of the students, so the student mm -hmm. would come in with a problem, and you'd role play this out near the near the therapist. So I'm paired up with this other woman, and the tape is rolling, and it's supposed to be a thirty minute session of some sort, and what she does she acts mute. It's not like she comes in and goes, oh, I've been having these issues. And She's silent. She won't even speak. And every time I try to engage her, she's role-playing this thing where she, she'll turn her back to me. I mean, it was, it was horrible. Uh, what do you do? It, 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 clearly, she was really, really mad. Yeah, incredibly mad at me. And it was her way of getting back at me. And I remember it was the longest 30 minutes I ever spent. <laughs> uh, I was finally able to coax a few words out of her. When we would finish the taping, he'd usually spend about 30 minutes uh, with each student. And you're in a group with 10 or 12 people. He spent an hour and a half on mine and would stop the tape and ask me a question and then stop the tape. He yeah. just ra raked me through the coals. Yeah. This program was going to last four years and each school year was 12 months. There was no break over the summer. I had worked so hard at UC Santa Cruz and read so much that the actual coursework there was uh, kind of a piece of cake. I didn't have to put in a huge amount of effort, but I was used to studying and 
I, I, it was hard for me to get motivated. And this, this stirred up all kinds of stuff for me. Uh, bad feelings from older times when I really didn't apply myself. So there was a sense of uncomfortability that I was going to slip back and try to skate through. What did become clear is that I didn't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I could see myself getting through, but I just didn't want to be involved in it. And on another level, I wasn't 100% honest with myself, but I don't think I was ready. I think I was too immature. I looked at it, the responsibility of becoming a psychotherapist as a huge responsibility. And I'd look around at some of my other students, and that was never on their radar. And there was no discussion around the, the, the huge res- responsibility and undertaking of, of carving out a life in that kind of profession. And I kept thinking to myself, God, if I was having difficulty and had to go to some of these students, yeah. I would be, it'd be awful. And there were certain students that I thought were really right on track and I'm sure became really, uh, really good at, at what they decided to do. But to cut to the chase, stopped. After five years of doggedly pursuing something and then not having that was very, very challenging for me. I had not a clue what I wanted to do. It was like going back to after high school or something. As I said, Rose was working in a in a restaurant and she'd had a a bet with one of the people working in the kitchen. And this guy was a I think he was a bass player for this ska band there was getting some traction back then. They were called the offs, the offs. And they had just cut an album and um, I researched them recently because I was just kind of curious. And they did end up cutting about five or six uh, albums. They ended up moving to New York and the first album cover, the the famous uh, artist uh, Basquiat, did the, did the artwork for that first <clears throat> cover of theirs. But they, Rose and he had this bet. Who's going to get fired first from this <laughs> job that they hate? I will tell you later, one of them did get fired. I'll tell you who it was. Um, so now I'm thinking, well, I've got to figure out a, some work and what I'm going to do. And I ended up, I was walking around the city and I saw this art gallery that was advertising for positions. And I met with the, the director, a German man named Wolf Schultz. Wolf Schultz. Very German, yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he gave me a job. There were probably four or five salespeople there and the job was based on a straight commission there was no salary you just simply if you sold something you got a percentage of that i had one suit to my name a graduation present from my folks for from college which was a very nice suit italian suit and then i then had to go into an assortment of thrift shop sport coats that were way too short on me that I thought looked kind of kind of cool but uh <laughs> didn't really cut it for that <laughs> that type of job and so every time I'd go into work the the director's wife if I was wearing my expensive italian suit she'd go oh you look so nice today bill and whenever I was wearing one of tweed my jackets ratty, yeah, yeah I, I didn't have the tweed jacket <laughs> she wouldn't say anything so I didn't know anything about art or, or selling art, really. And this was kind of a Midland art gallery. Uh, they had some Picasso prints. They had 
these lithographs by this guy called Harold Ar uh, Harold Altman. He did Parisian park scapes and um, Central Park scapes and those kinds of things. And not my cup of tea, I, well done, but uh, nothing that I would necessarily want to have hanging on my wall. And they had in the gallery what they, what they called the closing room. And if someone was really interested in a piece of art, you would take it off the wall and you put it into the, into the closing room. And the closing room had comfortable chairs and, a, and, and couches and lights that would go on a dimmer. Well, 1980, d dimmer lights were not popular. Nobody had them in their in their homes. So this was kind of something. Now, now mm. I, I now every every light in my house, including the bathroom, has a dimmer on it. But this is kind of a big deal, and particularly with these Harold Altman prints, it was a, a real gimmick. But you'd get the people in the in the in the closing room. And the room would be illuminated nicely. And then you put the dimmer slowly down and you go, oh, look at how the light changes in this work. It's, it's, it's magic. He, he does these lithographs with that in mind, knowing that just as it's getting darker and it's turning to dusk, that's what's happening in the image. It's <laughs> unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Well, I mean, most any piece of art, if you do, do that, it's obviously going to change. Yeah. <laughs> so... I had was there for about two or three weeks, and I had not sold one piece of artwork. On the and they had in a back room a chalkboard, and on the chalkboard it was the a monthly tally, and they would list the salespeople how many thousands of dollars of artwork. And there was one guy there that was really cocky, and he was a very good sales guy. He had these alligator boots that he wear that he told me he spent $700 on them, which was just a phenomenal yeah. 1980. And he would go, I'm going to sell this guy a piece of work. And, and, and sometimes he would. He'd just go over there and he'd sell them. And he'd sometimes say, I'm going to sell him this piece of work. And he, he could actually, not every time, but enough that I, me having been there for three, four weeks and not selling anybody. One night, on a Saturday night, this really well-dressed couple come in and start walking around the, 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 the gallery. And Wolf Schultz had seen them before, and he knew that this guy was a doctor, and they'd clearly come from a nice meal or a, a bar because they, they smelled of, of alcohol and they had that, uh, they weren't drunk, but they were really animated. And, yeah, and she was customers. Yeah. Yeah. She was particularly talkative. Well, Wolf Schultz is, is trying to get my attention and he's jumping up and down and, 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 and I'm going, okay, I, I, I wanted them to, explore the gallery a bit and not just get right on them. Cause I hate that in a, in a yeah. store. It's just like, give me some time. He finally gets a hold of me and he goes, Bill, he's a doctor for Christ's sakes. He's a doctor. You get him into that closing room. You get him into the closing room and you sell him something. You sell, 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 punish him, punish him with a sale punish him you know i'm going okay you know so <laughs> I, i'm going god all right so i go over there and i start engaging them and and she's going oh honey i love these harold altman lithographs oh and oh and these picasso drawings these they look wonderful and i'm loading up all this work and into the closing room and 
he's going, well, which, which ones, which one do you want? I want two of the almonds and I want this and I want that. And in my head, I'm just going, ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. <laughs> and <clears throat> he's going, oh, honey, you're going to break the bank. You're going to break the bank. And she's going, oh, I'll make it up to you. I'll make it up to you. You know, this all this banter going back and forth. So after about an hour, they had racked up quite a few thousands of, of, of dollars. And I'm looking at, I don't know, I'm trying to think back, but it was a few thousand dollars in commissions, which for me was about two and a half months of, of living. Yeah. It's a huge amount. So I felt just fabulous, absolutely fabulous. And finally, I get home. God, Rose, this is so great. We sold all this artwork. And yeah, it's kind of, you know, they, it's credit card, blah, blah, blah. So it'll take a while for it to get processed. But when I come back in, it's going to be fantastic. And immediately, Wolf goes into the back and he, and I'm at the top of the list. It's early in the month. It's maybe, you know, eight, eight or 10 days in. But now I've supplanted the big sales guy by quite a bit. I'm going, oh, this is great. So I'm off work for a couple of days and I come back in and I wear my good, good suit because I thought, all right, and, and thought, God, maybe I'll be able to buy an inexpensive but d decent suit. And everybody is tiptoeing around me. They're, they're, I'm going, hey, how's it going? And they're, oh, fine, you know, right. And finally, another sales guy goes, did you go in the back room and look? It, it, do you know what happened? I said no, and he says I don't. I can't believe Wolf didn't tell you. He said those people backed out. They decided not to buy any of this artwork. Mm -hmm. And I go back in there, and I'm zero. I'm <laughs> down. Uh... I was crushed, absolutely crushed. Uh, so I'm trying to make it through this shift, and I get a call from a a friend and I'm commiserating telling him what had happened. And he said, look, well, there's this party tonight. Why don't you come? And I said, well, I'm working. And he goes, come on, you can do it. And so I just turned to the director and I said, I'm, I'm leaving. And he said, well, you can't, you can't leave now. It's your shift. And I said, no, I'm actually leaving. I'm quitting. Um, which I did. So now it's back to square one. What am I going to do? And within a day or two, I get a call from my, my brother, Jerry. I've spoken about him in previous podcasts. Uh, obviously, my weekend selling and working in the shop. Those were things that my brother had designed and produced. And, and um, he was on to a new venture and he was very, very excited about it. He was living in Salt Lake City, Utah. And he was in medical school at that time. But what he had come up with was a one-piece wraparound sunglass that came in different colors, standard kind of gray uh, or, 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 I guess, smoke-colored lens that you would see on typical sunglasses. But then he offered them in these chartreuse and fuchsia and lime green and five or six different colors. And they were really slick. No, no bows on them. So they didn't bend any, anywhere, but he had mm. to design all of the machinery to make this heat shields on it. And you'd have to bend them at, at just the right temperature without wrecking the optics of them. And it was like a, out of the Flintstones, uh, the, these machines, these long machines that, that he had built and constructed to be able to fabricate these things. And they were great. It was really 
perfectly timed with this f fashion that they would call they called um, new age new mm -hmm. age fashion and he said i, I want to start selling these and the first person that <clears throat> got their hands on them was my friend jim nettleton whose apartment we'd taken over <clears throat> jim was an amazing salesperson very charismatic funny smart creative and he got the first few dozen as dozen uh, sunglasses with it with the little display case and he started to take them into some of the well-known stores uh, that we all know about macy's Saks, um bomba teller Henry Bendel, Macy's, big department stores and specialty stores. And the buyers loved them. These were glasses that were going to retail for about 10 bucks. And we, we, we would sell them for about five bucks and then they'd mark it up to 10 bucks. So he got his first displays in, into these stores. My brother's still working out the production uh, capabilities which is improving every week. And within the first weekend, all of the stores sold out, everything. Just crazy. could not even keep them on the shelves. So my brother said, listen, you need to come to Salt Lake City. It'll be very, very, you'll be there for a few months. I want you there to run the sales operation and you can now... Uh, what I'd like you to do is to go around the, the country and set up a sales cruise uh, in the major major areas, Chicago, L.A., it's, and, and a number of other places. Salt Lake City is not a mecca for fashion. Uh, it is the center of the Mormon church in the United States. Uh, At the, the 80s. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, even even now, uh, the Latter Day Saints, uh, Latter Day Saints, uh, Mormon, the, the Tabernacle, is is a huge part of what goes on in that in that uh, city. Uh, I don't know what the percentage of Mormons, but it's it's well it was well 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 above fifty or sixty percent. And I don't know too much about their religion. I do know that. Um, they do not approve of, of alcohol, for example. So it was very weird. You'd go to a, a, a restaurant, and if you sat at the bar or even at a table, they, they could not serve you a mixed drink. They'd come out, if you're going to get a gin and tonic, for example, they'd come out and they'd give you the tonic, and then they'd come out with the airplane mini bottles, and they would hand them to you, and you would have to mix your own your own drink right yeah, because they don't know how to make it that's right i don't they don't think they could make a manhattan uh, for, ex <laughs> for example so we did this uh we lived there and uh, there was right off the bat it got it got, got off to a shaky start because i think rose when i was talking to my brother about this rose was in germany and when she came back I brought her up to speed. Uh, I'd mentioned that Jerry really wants me to be out there so that we can work directly together. And he said it would be three months. Well, we, I, we get there and the, I said to my brother, oh, you know, well, uh, it's not my favorite place to live by any means, but, you know, three months that's not such a big deal. And he goes, three months? What are you talking about? Whoever told you that? You're going to be here at least a year. I can't imagine you being here any any less than a year. And Rose is looking at me like, what is going on here? And I wanted to explain to her, I'm not lying. He actually really did say that. I've had a few conversations over the years uh, and my brother never copped to it, so I don't know. 
there was a big, big mis- misunderstanding. Uh, so I do my part. I set up a crew of, of people in the United States. Uh, we're not thrilled to be in Salt Lake City. They, incidentally, they did have wonderful skiing. Uh, very some great skiing opportunities. Um, I'm not a very skilled skier. Uh, Rose grew up uh, skiing, so she uh, could leave me in the dust on that kind of stuff. But I did it. I did it. Did enjoy doing it. That's that, that's for sure. We had, we're now really selling a lot. Of, of these alley eyes. And my friend Jim reached out to a number of magazines and the press we got was incredible. They, he got us into what they call consumer editorials where a magazine like um, Harper's Bazaar or in one instance, Vogue magazine, they would photograph the sunglasses and do a whole piece on it, talking about where you can purchase them, how much they cost, this whole thing. And what, there was one spread in Vogue where a f- famous photographer, Arthur Penn, did a whole one-page spread of it. Now what started happening, we were so well-known, and I, I kid you not, I think we were into two or 3,000 retail outlets that we started getting ripped off by Taiwanese uh, manufacturers. And they were coming in and making a product that looked quite like ours, but very inferior optics. But they were able now to undercut our price and it became really, really difficult for us. Uh, the nicer stores didn't didn't go for them, but uh, it really impacted our sales. And my brother began realizing that they, the uh, handwriting was on the wall, and he, and he decided that he was going to manufacture a more expensive sunglass. And in order to do that, he had to spend a, a lot of time researching the, 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 the methodology. But what it entailed, it entailed our escape from Salt Lake City. And I have to say, I want to give credit to Rose that she pushed, pushed, pushed to get to New York City. She couldn't stand Salt Lake City. Uh, it was not her thing. And she loved New York City. And we, we decided to do that. It took some time to, for my brother to get, get the production thing squared away. But we had, had returned to San Francisco while we were waiting to get our our marching orders. And I did want to redress, actually. I had mentioned about Rose working in the the restaurant, and her involvement with the restaurant ended before we came to Salt Lake. Uh, What uh, Rose won the contest. She did get fired. (laughs) That's what I was about to ask, yeah. I I don't... uh, There was an occasion where I showed up to her restaurant with a colleague from the art gallery and she delivered a free meal, a free meal to us. Uh, and the owner became aware of that. She did not have permission to do that. And so for whatever the cost of the food, $15, they just said, you're out of here. Um, Mm -hmm. What can you do? But we get our our clear clear signal to go to to New York, 
and it was very, very scary. I think there was only about three or four thousand dollars to work with, which which included finding a an office where I could show the sunglasses, and also finding a an apartment in New York City, and the time constraints were were really drastic. We needed to get a showroom in right away. Uh, we wanted to get in there before they have what they call these fashion weeks. And fa- uh, that's when buyers from all around the country would come in yeah, and they would place orders and stuff. And we needed to have a place. We couldn't find an office in the fashion accessories neighborhood. but we So we ended up in the garment district. And it, it was so atmospheric. It was a little off the beaten track, made it more difficult to get buyers in. But you'd see people moving these racks of clothing just the size of a bus into these elevators and getting them up there, just this hustle bustle of things, uh, merchandise going in and out. And we've been in this office space from these two Indian men, which was so cool. Sonny and Iqbal, and they were completely uh, fascinated and really got into the fact that Rose and I had spent all that time in India. It, it, I think that's one of the reasons they rented, they rented to us. They really liked hearing our stories. And, uh, cool. You know, they'd walk around with their socks on, and um, it was just a really a, a, a great scene. But what had happened, one of the reasons I was under so much pressure is that my friend Jim had moved on from the sunglass uh, thing and had gotten uh, work as a the director of the Stella Adler Conservatory, an acting conservatory, and kind of almost functioned as her personal assistant. Stella Adler hugely famous uh, woman came from the Yiddish theater and developed one of the most prestigious acting schools in New York. A ton of famous actors came through her. uh, uh, One of which is Marlon Brando, for Mm -hmm. example. And um, I actually had the, the great fortune of seeing her do a couple of her scenes classes and, uh, just a, a kind of a frightening individual, but and tough, so strict, but amazing, an amazing person to watch in, in action. I needed to get Jim on board, and I tried and tried and tried, and I finally was successful to get him to put some time into the project because I knew I'd be lost without him. And it re- really what it took is having him over to my office, looking expe- especially dapper and having a nice bottle of champagne and sitting around and toasting and all of those kinds of good things. And after an hour and a half, he said, okay, I, I, will, I will do so, this. So you learned something from your sales job in San Francisco, getting people drunk I, is good for selling. <laughs> Yes, and he liked the glitz. It's true. He he liked the glitz that 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 went with it. So my brother's getting his production capabilities up. The the glasses now that he's selling do have bows, so they have hinges on them, but they're frameless, which is really amazing. The lenses are are all part of the same frame. Uh, the, the, the frame, they were unbelievably great looking. These were now retailing for 50 or $60. Mm-hmm. So it was a real, a much more serious purchase and whatnot. And we started selling the, the crap out of these things. Mind you, my brother's still in medical school. He's pretty much finished and he's working 
on this project as well. I can't imagine the the hours. And then we've learned that we cancel these orders. We've written all of these orders and the bugs, the production bugs, have not been ironed out. So it became very, very problematic. You'd have a salesperson and they'd be going, well, when are you going to be shipping by? Mm. Well, I don't know. We're hoping to do it within six weeks. And that, and it just became obvious. And after discussing it with my, with my brother, realized that we just, we can't, we can't go forward. It, um, so now we're in New York and, uh, no job. It, uh, it was a scary time. It was a very, very scary, a very scary time. We'd, we had some deposit left on the office space that we were renting and, and Sonny and Ethel were so, so cool to us. They didn't penalize us for breaking the lease. And with some of that money, Rose and I just decided to get out of the city for a while. And we went to, we went to Mexico uh, for a, for a month. And, um, I, I think my older sister joined us for a, a few weeks. And it was just what the doctor ordered. But in the back of my mind was that feeling of what are we going to, what are we going to do when we mm -hmm. get back to, to New York? I had not thought at all about getting back into psychology and the sales stuff, even though I was okay at it, I, I never felt it was something that I was great at mm. uh, or, or necessarily good at. And New York's an expensive, an expensive town. So oh, no. you can't, you can't just, <laughs> you just can't be hanging out. And so the question really that was on both of our minds what do we do? How do we live? How do we make it in New York? And that's where I leave you, my friend. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was gonna going to ask you about the bet, but you answered it, this yourself. Um, I would love to see these sunglasses. I've never heard of them. Oh my God, I thought for sure there'd be a couple kicking around. I might have a few, I might have a few pairs, you know, that's for, I'd have to look. I think I've got a couple pairs of, of, of each. What, what I didn't articulate clearly about New York when we arrived there in, I think, 82 or 83 of just how difficult it was to find a place to live. Mm -hmm. It was one of the hardest things in the world. We, through my friend Jim, were able to get a sublet for a month from this guy that was traveling. And it was on the, in the East Village, right across from the Hell's Age Angels, the motorcycle group, their, their headquarters. And then this big, the big sign that says, said, uh, when in doubt, knock them out. And <laughs> all the motorcycles and stuff. And this place that we subletted, it was a one bedroom place in deplorable condition. And in, 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 in many of these tenement walk-up uh, spaces, in the in the kitchen, in the center of the kitchen would be the bathtub, <laughs> with a shower with with a shower curtain around it, so that there'd be a, a shower and bath in the in the kitchen. And I remember when we got there, we it was in the evening, and I said, "I'm going to take a shower." 
uh, I had the lights very, very almost, I think pretty much off or something. And then I'm taking my shower and I've got the shower curtain around me and uh, I'm washing my hair and, and I look at the shower curtain and I go, God, I didn't realize. I thought it was just a, an off-white shower curtain. I, I didn't realize it had all of these dark patterns <laughs> on it. And then I look at it closer and I go, God, these dark patterns are, they're actually, they're, they're moving. And I, then I realized this isn't good. And I get out of the shower, sopping wet and turn on the light. And there are hundreds of cockroaches that are just scurrying all around the the shower curtain. Uh, It was just, this is what you lived. You you, you lived uh, in this kind of, uh, so our sublet ends, right? And as I said, it was so hard to find a place. The, the, there was one method that you had. There was a uh, weekly uh, news magazine that came out called The Village Voice. It was very, very popular. They covered theater, music, dance, politics. And one section at the very end were apartments for the, or for rent. And they'd come out once a week on Wednesday. And you'd go either to their headquarters or the first newsstand. It was a free, it was free and you would get a village voice six o'clock in the morning and you'd begin dialing anything that was affordable. You get busy signals, busy signals. And each week you, you, you might get three or four or five leads on apartments and nine times out of 10, by the time you called, it would already be rented. So it was, or if you showed up, there would be yeah. 15 people waiting to uh, rent. We were able to get, finally, uh, an apartment, which seemed super expensive for us at the time. I think it was $850 a month for a, a flat in, in, in Soho, a one bedroom. But uh, at any rate, it, it was uh, the major leagues. This was not uh, anything yeah. short of. Uh, I mean, you're in, New, you're in New York now, so. Yeah. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> cool. Um, I'm very curious on how you made it there. Uh, and so for the next episode, thank you. Thank you. For today. All right. And have a good day. You too now. Bye. Bye.